Hey, you're listening to the teaching portion of the Crossridge Women's Study in the Book of Revelation. This is part two from winter 2023. For more info about us and to access our resources, you can find us at crossridge.church forward slash W study. Okay, so tonight, this is a lot, isn't it? Did it feel like a lot when you were studying? Or because you had more time, did it feel not so much, or it just did? It felt like a lot. You can say, it doesn't hurt my feelings. It felt like a lot? Yeah. Um, yeah, and maybe maybe just the long part of it, like then you think, oh, I've got so much time. That's right. Which is what I did. I, I was lamenting actually last night when I, I knew I needed to send you guys the email and make some decisions, and I was lamenting to my youngest saying like, I took too much of a break on spring break. Like, I, I, I took spring break way too seriously. I never do, and I didn't plan to. I usually, like, do a lot of work during that time, and I, for some reason, I did not. I absolutely, well, what my daughter said to me is like, Mom, it's good, you had a long Sabbath. I was like, yes, actually, I did. So I should be... You know, there's a whole thing that you're supposed to work out of your Sabbath. Instead of, like, just barely making it to Sabbath, the Sabbath you're, the Sabbath is supposed to, like, propel you forward. And you work well and with purpose and vigor out of your good Sabbath. So I'm hoping maybe I'll explain some jet lag or, I don't know, something. It's going to come tomorrow, right? The vigor and the energy. But anyway... Um, Another reason why, though, it might have felt like a lot is because this is a lot. So in, within these three chapters, 18 to 20, is some of the most highly disputed passages and difficult. So difficult that Christians from the earliest of time have, like, disagreed. Good Christians, people who love God, who serve him, who love his word... Um, they disagree. Um, and so that can feel a little bit like you, you really can't find answers sometimes. Um, and so I don't know if that's maybe why it feels heavy too. But it, it also can feel heavy because it's the book of Revelation and we're getting to the end. So we've been in this for a long time. So that happens. Um, so anyway, as I was sort of praying and preparing, I... I had a really hard time coming up with what we should talk about, but the Lord kept putting on my heart questions. And I think it was because um, a lot of questions are raised by these chapters. And actually, Revelation should have been raising a lot of questions for us, and maybe it has for you. And at the very beginning, um, every week, I I always start by sort of asking this first question um, that says, like, what questions does does this raise for you? What's challenging? Maybe what questions would the original reader have had as he or she was hearing this message? Um, and so I thought, let's, let's start with questions tonight, and then let's let our questions sort of guide us as we go along. And that's on page 32 in your homework. So if you did, do your homework. If you just turn to that, um, this is question number two. And you know what? Sometimes by the end of your study, you actually came up with questions that never ended up on this question. So you don't have, you're not stuck to that. But we're going to start tonight by 
coming up with some lists of questions that maybe we have about these three chapters or that a reader, any reader, might have coming out of these three three chapters. Um, Can I ask you first, why do you think we might struggle with having questions when it comes to biblical passages? Do you guys feel that? Does anyone here say, like, I don't know, sometimes I feel a little bit of tension around having a question? I think it's good for us to say out loud, we can, um, and, and maybe our tradition didn't even intend to do this, but sometimes out of different traditions or just, you know, our faith history, we can feel a bit like if we, if we have a question of the text that we can't answer or something doesn't feel right or rubs us kind of funny, that that, that is demonstrating a lack of faith, right? Or that we're not trusting God's word. Or that we don't have a high view of scriptures. We, we can actually feel that sometimes. And I just wanted to say that that's not true. And the reason why we know that's not true is because what we learned when we studied the book of Mark is that actually asking the questions is exhibiting faith. Um, and that's what the disciples kept coming back. And the people in the book of Mark, in the gospel of Mark, who come back to Jesus and say, Lord, what does this mean? When he's talking about in parables, and they come back and say, I don't understand. Tell me what this means. Those are actually not the people who did not have faith or who lacked faith. Those are the people who were actually contending for faith. And so we talk about this a lot with our um, with study, that we're, we're working for comprehension. You have to work for it. We have to dig for it. We actually do some steps. We use some tools because lots of times we read, open up and read the Bible and say, what in the actual world? Um, and so part of, of asking questions, I think, is, is an example of working for comprehension, working for understanding, and um, that are realizing that it's just not handed to us on a, on a plate when we open the Bible. Um, and the other thing is that we can feel freedom in this because we have always said the Holy Spirit is the teacher, right? When we open the word of God, that um, the Holy Spirit is there to guide us and we can feel very free to like take our questions to the Lord and say, man, I'm, I'm wrestling with this. And maybe... We will wrestle with something out of scripture for years and years before having an answer, maybe our entire life, and that's okay. Um, I think, yeah, that's all part and parcel of faith. So um, let's, let's say it's okay to have questions. It's good to have questions. And actually, you guys know this. Like question, asking our questions of the text is a good way to study, right? That's, that's good study. It's not just like reading through. It's like wrestling with it. So you probably ask very good questions all the time as you're reading. And that's sort of the point of teaching us how to Bible, to do Bible study, that someday, and eventually, not someday, even now, as you're listening to other scripture being taught, or as you're reading on your own, that you, can, you know the salient questions. You know which questions should be asked, or that the text is even asking. Okay, so we're going to do this in table groups. Um, because sometimes uh, a barrier is like, I don't want to ask my question in front of 20 people, but maybe I can ask it in front of four or five people that I've been sitting around the table with for the last few months. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you like five or six minutes only. We're not going to take a ton of time. And in your group, just see if like be brave and see what are some of the questions that you think these three, quest- these three chapters raise. 
maybe for the reader. You don't even have to think about it if it's too stressful to think about it, that you have this question, but that the reader would, would be asking after reading this. And maybe they are questions that you have that you already answered because of your good study, but those are still good questions to, um, to talk about too. They can guide us. I'm going to bring, if you have sort of someone who maybe makes a note of it quickly, then I have all the pens here. And I'm going to just divide the board into the three different chapter headings. And then if you, at some point, whenever your group is ready, or when I say, okay, that's time, if you come up, we're just going to write our questions on the board tonight. So we sort of have them to guide us tonight. Got it? So I have paper if you don't want to write down any books. So I'll bring that around to all the tables. Okay? Go ahead. Friends, the list of questions we compiled was long, and yet it was still woefully incomplete. Had we more time and more space on the board, we could have put so many more from these three chapters. But as we go forward and as you keep listening, I really hope that perhaps some of the questions you have out of these three chapters uh, might be addressed. And going forward over the next few weeks, you might hear more that brings clarity to some of these things we're struggling with, some of the questions we have out of these three important chapters in the book of Revelation. These are, these are really good questions, aren't they? These are, this is very good. Yeah, there's some really, really good questions here. Okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to just work our way through these three chapters. It's, it's already 7.30, so we, we might not get to, we might, we won't get through it all. And that's okay. And we won't answer all these questions. But, <laughs> no, um, and actually, like, some of them I, I might not answer, and I, have good, I, I feel like I have good answers for. Some of them I might not answer because I don't have an answer. Some of them, and sometimes this is true, like sometimes we don't answer questions because we think, well, it's, it's a question, and maybe it doesn't need to be asked. Does that make sense? And sometimes we, we might answer other questions as we go that we didn't even know were an important question. So by the end of this, though, I'm going to take a picture and um, hopefully, over the next couple weeks, if there's something that we don't get to, I'm going to see if somehow I can even just put something in an email. Even if that is, I don't know. And maybe the answer is, I don't know tonight, but I might know for you next time, right? That's what we say. Okay, so let's start with chapter 18. And literally, these are the, these are the questions we should start with. Rebe- uh, Rachel's Table's very first question was, what does it mean that... That Babylon, ha- Babylon has fallen. Who is Babylon and who is this funeral for? Those are actually the first three questions written in my book here that I thought these are the questions um, that we should start with. You know, when I first started studying the Bible inductively, um, they always said, what do you do? You ask the five W's, right? Who, what, where, when, why? And then maybe answer how, but you're getting into dangerous interpretive weeds there when you do. But definitely start with the five W's. So um, lots of these questions do that. And so I, I said, yeah, okay, here we go. Let's say, let's just say, humor me, because if, if, I, if I were a preacher, I might, I might title 18, 19, 20, yeah. Funeral, a wedding, and a war. But um, who is the funeral for? It's, it's Babylon. 
right? So let's answer, let's try to answer some of these questions. Anybody out here have an answer? What does it mean? The first words of chapter 18, um, not the first, but you know, it has fallen. And, and actually some of your translations might say, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. There's repetition there. What do you think it means that Babylon has fallen? Do we need to back up? Who is Babylon? Let's back up. We started talking about this last time, and Heather talked quite a bit about it. Did working through this chapter give any of you like, hey, I actually had some insights into what, who Babylon is? The world, the world systems. The world systems? Sorry, what did you say? The world systems that seduces us? That's a good answer. Yeah. So first of all, very, if you're just thinking about the Bible and the Old Testament, what is Babylon? A power, a wealthy nation. Okay, let's go, yeah, get even more. Started at Babel. It started at Babel, okay? It was a city, right? And, and then becoming a kingdom, right? So it started, and we said this last time, it started at Babel, the Tower of Babel, or, or Babel, however you want to read that. Actually, kind of the first city that we read about in the Bible. And what made this city interesting is that all the people got together and said, hey, let's build ourselves a tower. and Maybe we can get to heaven by ourselves, by building this tower. And they built the tower uh, of Babel to try to reach heaven, right? Um, so that's Genesis 11. Is it 11? Yes, it's Genesis 11. And that is that city. I mean, from there, then that Babel became Babylon, the city of Babylon. In the Old Testament, Babylon became this great power, a great nation, um, who was in opposition to the people of God. And interestingly enough, like here, here it starts at the Tower of Babel, and actually it started in the garden, didn't it? But in, in Babel, we see people trying to reach out and do things on their own apart from God. Okay, So I think it's really, when, when this table says it's the world systems, what did you say? The world system that seduces us from God. I, I think it is good that we can see that it is representative of like this city that's in opposition to God. Or like in, in the Old Testament, it became this opposition, an, an enemy to the people of God, right? Um, it's sort of representative. I think in scripture we can say that cities represent kingdoms. So, so Babylon then became this kingdom of man. Or Augustine wrote about it in like three or four hundred, right? And he said there was the city of God and the city of man, right? Just this understanding that when you say world systems or someone said power, right? These two opposing powers, which really fits in with what we've seen in Revelation, does it not? Like, there's the dragon, and there's the lamb, and everything's, like, really black and white. Okay. Um, yeah, and so, it, but let's remember, too, that it's more than a city. Actually, one of the men from Men's Study, like, a month ago, before Christmas, he pulled me aside out in front of the clove, and it's like, you know, Carolyn, Babylon, it's not a city. <laughs> I was like, I know, isn't it great? <laughs> so... Um, anyway, but yeah, not necessarily a city. And now when, when they're talking about a lot of these things, it sounds like a city that the original reader was familiar with. What was the city who was putting Christians to death, who was drunk on the blood of the martyrs at the time of the original reader? 
Rome. That's right. So uh, Babylon was an enemy of God, like in the time of Nebuchadnezzar and in the time when they destroyed the, the temple in 586. But then also, you know, Rome exhibits these characters of Babylon, of opposition to God. And, and Rome is a city that is against God, the enemy of God that is persecuting and, and killing Christians. So then all of a sudden, Rome exhibits Babylon-ness, right? And, I mean, carry that forward throughout history. You can think of a lot of kingdoms, even till today, that exhibit Babylon-ness, And I would argue that probably every city or every kingdom in this world, we could say, here are some characteristics of a city of man, of Babylon. And and here's some characteristics of the city of God in all of them, right? There is still, the kingdom is going forward. Here in Surrey, there's a lot of the kingdom of man. You don't have to go far to see that. But also, there's the kingdom of God going forward in Surrey. Crossroads Church is a part of it. Like we are doing a lot of things that is like moving forward the kingdom of God. So let's think of Babylon, not necessarily a city, more than a city. It is Rome, but it's also more than Rome. It kind of starts here and then it goes bigger. Kind of a worldview, a love, a power, a desires. Uh, does that make sense? Okay, so we can say that Revelation kind of has been, because we're always looking at this, the truth and then the counterfeit. Like Babylon, you could say it's the counterfeit of the city of God, right? Because, and the city of God is what represented in Revelation? What's the city of God? We're going to see it in 21. New Jerusalem. Yeah, the new Jerusalem. And interestingly, like that Jerusalem comes up not till... The, the, the 21st chapter. And John hasn't said Rome. You know, if he would have just said Rome, Rome is drunk on the blood of martyrs. True statement. But then, like, we can stand here and say, oh, yeah, we're okay. We live in Surrey. Good thing we didn't live in Rome. Right? But Babylon-ness actually can be even a part of us. Like, not even just our city, but it can be a part of our, our heart. Um, if we say it's a worldview. I do think this is interesting to ask this question. Why is it personified as a woman? I think because the church is personified as a bride. Yes, so it's, kind of a it's the contrast. Yeah. yeah, it's the prostitute to the woman. And actually, I think that goes all the way through to wisdom literature from the Old Testament of Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly in the book of Proverbs. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same thing. Yeah kind of thematic yeah okay um, okay we'll get to some of these things um, let's look now at these two women just for a minute this is something I didn't um, ask you to do in your homework and so we're going to just do it right now if you open to chapter 18 um, specifically verses 1 to 9 is where I'm, I'm mostly looking at. You might 
just remember something as we go. But I'm going to read to you the first four verses of chapter 21, which is the bride, New Jerusalem, this other city that is in like that is contrasted with the city of man and this idea of Babylon. And I'm going to read it just sort of like line by line, and I want you to see if you like how what does it how does it compare or contrast to what you read in Revelation 18? Okay, so just scan your eyes down Revelation 18. And then uh, what would you say is the contrast, sort of, um, going back as I, I'm going to read ahead. I'm going to read 21, 1 to 4. And how do we, what's the contrast that we read in Revelation 18 from Babylon? Okay, the first verse says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Okay, so I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. What do you think the contrast is from 21? They're the holy city. What's the contrasting statement made of Babylon? Instead of the holy city, what's it? Demons, yes, and the, and also, so what else? Everything. So you've said yes, yes, yeah. So holy, and you guys are saying all these things that you could sum up as like unclean, right? Actually, I don't know if yes. Well, I have ESV here too. So it says unclean spirit, unclean bird. So there's this holy city, and you get the sense that Babylon is unclean. It's also, another one you could say, is holy, and Babylon is great. I think that's interesting because that word there, Babylon the great, just means like it's large, and it's shiny, and it's magnificent. All the things that mankind cares about. And what does God care care about? Man looks on the outward things. God looks at that heart yeah the inside so here's this sense what's important here it is a holy city and babylon is this great city okay the new jerusalem now here what's the contrast coming down out of heaven from god so it's coming down out of heaven and there's actually a parallel to what is happening to babylon that's what we're saying right here yeah that babylon has fallen So the holy city comes out of heaven. It's prepared by God. So it's from God. It's part of his plan and part of God's plan here. Babylon has fallen. What does it mean that it's fallen? This is actually a question. Does anyone have thoughts? It's lost its power. Yeah, lost its power. You would say if a king has fallen or a kingdom has fallen in ancient Near East, yeah, it doesn't have any power anymore. It's been defeated. Yes, that's right. Okay, so we see, I think we see sort of the sovereignty of God there in his plan. His plan is that the holy city is to come and replace and defeat the counterfeit city of man in Babylon. Good, yeah. How about this one? We've already talked about this a bit, but prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. What's the contrast in Babylon? Yeah, the prostitute, right? Everything about sexual immorality, even what you said before about the dwelling place for demons and the unclean spirit and detestable beasts and 
the unclean birds. We've already seen from chapter 7 that she is dressed, and we will see again, like she is dressed as a prostitute, right? In contrast to what we are going to see is the new creation dressed as a bride, and that's what it says here, okay? Uh, Verse 3, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Do you see the parallel in chapter 18? Mm -hmm. Okay, the loud voice in chapter 21 says this, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Okay, what does the voice say in chapter 18? Yeah, come out of her, my people. Okay, so I think this is interesting. The the new city, there's this sense that this is where God was made to dwell. Um, Sorry, where mankind was made to dwell. And God is bringing the city and saying, now, listen, you're going to live here. God is going to be with you in fellowship. And in chapter 18, the message for God's people is, come out of her, my people. Like, come away from her. Don't dwell there. You were made to dwell here in the, in the New Jerusalem. In fact, in the ESV, the rest of that command says this, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. And that taking part and sharing that word is, is the sense is fellowship. Fellowship, like relationship. Intimacy. We, we have sort of have talked about this a bit, right? Intimacy in terms of this prostitute or the intimacy that the bride has with, the, with Christ. So this is about relationship and dwelling. And that's, is that not what we've been saying the Bible is from Eden. It's about relationship. It's about God making a place where he can dwell with man. Uh, Last thing, uh, it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. So in the new um, city, the city of God, all these things, grief, are, are not there. And the contrast is interesting in Babylon. She actually talks about grief. What does she say? She denies it'll ever happen to her. Yeah, it's never going to happen to me. Right? Mourning I'll never see. I won't have any grief. Right? There's a real pride there. Um, Yeah. Uh, Another contrast that I saw in here was um, when it talks about in verse 6 it says pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed so remember the prostitute was standing with a cup right and in the in the new creation um, if you keep reading on to verse 6 and 7 it talks about the thirsty to come and drink from the waters of life so there's a real sense that there's this the waters of death and infidelity contrasted to water of life okay so john is really setting up these two two different cities the the prostitute and the bride it's all meant to be this real stark contrast okay let's go back to our tables i know this is we don't often do this but we're going to go back to our table and we're going to answer some of the other questions that we need to answer here like who is mourning 
Okay, and what are they mourning? Um, and what is, like, why is Babylon judged? So um, these are questions, I think, seven, about seven to ten. Um, we're going to look at questions in your homework. I think it's seven, eight, nine, and possibly ten if you have time. Um, a couple of them are just really quick. We sort of have it up here. Actually, let's answer this question together first because it's on the board. Um, who is it that's mourning? Well, it's three groups. And who are the three groups? Kings of the earth, merchants of the earth, and shipmasters and seafarers. Yeah. So this is a good question. Why is there so much written about ships, sailors, and kings? And actually, these are three different groups. Um, so we say kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, and the shipmasters, the seafaring men. So it starts with kings. And it says those who rule under her in her kingdom ways, they are intimate with her. They are committed to her. They live in luxury with her, right? So they are self-indulgent. They indulgent. They sort of rule under her. And then there's these two groups. There's merchants of the earth and there's merchants of the sea. And so basically it's covering everything. Remember, we always say in like the imagery in, the, in Revelation is land and sea. That's what there is, right? There's land and sea. That is the domain of mankind, land and sea. So, and this is for the ancient Near Eastern reader and like those who lived in Rome, this was, those were the two places where commerce happened, like on the land and on the sea. So this was where everyone was getting wealthy. Um, so basically, I think one of your questions says, like what's similar between those those um three groups, because there is some things that they all have in common. Um, so maybe we don't have to answer that first question, number seven. So the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, and the shipmasters, the seafaring men and sailors. So I would say, yes, it's just symbolic of everyone who has bought into Babylon's, whatever you said, system of how to, like, worldly system, our system of power. How are we going to get power? It's, it's probably through economic means. So let's go um, then in our groups. Let's look at 8, 9, and 10. So what repetition or similarity do you observe between their three laments? So the kings, the merchants of earth, the merchants of the sea. What similarity and what do you think that emphasizes? And then you can just go to, um, actually go, go to 10. And then if you have time, so go from 8 and 10. And then if you have time, um, and nobody's saying anything else, you can look at what the angels say in those two passages and and think about why Babylon is judged. Just the why. We'll talk about that together. Okay? Is that clear as mud? (laughs) Okay. Go. After we spent time in our small groups this week, one of our table leaders... Um, gave us her own application and prayer coming out of question number 10 in the homework. And that question basically asks, what more have you learned from chapters 18 to 20 about Babylon that has um, helped the Holy Spirit or caused the Holy Spirit to convict you or warn you in terms of the way that Babylon has a hold in your own life and heart? And it was convicting for all of us to consider the way that, that we love the self-indulgent life that Babylon offers. 
We love her abundance of comfort and we love her luxury. all saw that. I was looking that up because in the ESV it says luxury and the CSB it says sensual and excessive ways. And I was just thinking about how like like tangible, physical, like embodied that sounds. Um, sensual and excessive ways. And I looked at that, the word in it is really talking about self-indulgence and luxury is basically an abundance of comfort. And I thought, wow, if we don't have an abundance of comfort in our life, and if we don't, yeah, strive for all those things that are self-indulgent, just self-centered, like our own platform and pushing ourselves into the position we think we should be in and, and presenting ourselves in a certain way in conversations and making ourselves look a certain way. And it doesn't even have to be on a selfie, does it? Right? It can be in conversation or or whatever, like guilty. I, I um, was struck by this verse. I just, we're going to move on, but I just wanted to read this. Chapter 14. This is where the merchants of earth are weeping and mourning, and it says no one will buy her, their cargo any longer. So here they're mourning. Why are they mourning? Because they're losing money, right? They've lost the wealth and the luxury and the abundance of comfort that Babylon offers. Um, and I do think it's important when we think about that, like Rebecca was saying, that we can just remember, okay, what, what's the application to this? In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he talks about his kingdom as opposed to this counterfeit kingdom of Babylon that is all about luxury and self-indulgence and excessiveness and sensuality. And what does he say about his kingdom? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, right? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And we talk about it all the time, this, this upside-down kingdom, but I don't think we really want to believe that the way to blessedness in the city of God is through, like, lowness, like the lowly state. We still think that our blessedness in the kingdom of God is power and position and, like, you know, our influence even. And I, I was just really, I was really struck, struck by the difference there, like the difference between this luxury and self-indulgence and, you know, holding up and then Jesus' words in that sermon. Um, just lowly, meek, and, and the humble um, citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Um, but anyway, sorry. Uh, so they're, they're, they're mourning what they've lost. And they say this in verse 14. The fruit you craved. Sorry, I'm reading out of CSB. How would I read out of um, ESV? The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you. Never to be found again. Now I'm going to read it in the CSB. The fruit you craved has left you. All your splendid and glamorous things are gone. They will never find them again. Let me ask you, what does that remind you of when I say, the, when you read, the fruit you craved has left you? Adam and Eve, doesn't it? The fruit you craved. It sounds a lot like Eden. That's right. In the second line of that, it says, all your splendid and glamorous things are gone. And it's easy to read over that, but for some reason, 
because it made sense. You know, it's shiny and it's wonderful. It's part of Babylon, sure. Um, but I looked up those two words, and this is super interesting to me, maybe not to you. All your splendid and glamorous things. The word splendid means bright, like like bright as in you see them because they're so bright and shiny. And glamorous means fatty and rich, like to food, okay? So the, these shiny things that you see, and then this idea of fatty and rich food. Okay, so let's keep thinking about Genesis 3. When Eve saw that fruit that she craved, do you remember what she said? What she thought? It was pleasing to the eye, bright and splendid. And what else? And it was good for food. Yeah. It said, how about I'll read? I was going to read it and then. Yes. It was good for food, or good for food and pleasing to the eye. Let's read what it says in the CSB, if you have it in the. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So here, I, I just couldn't help but see that here. It is the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and your splendor. Everything that was pleasing to the eye and that was good for food are lost to you. It, I think that is a direct reference to Eden, which really we could argue, and we've, we've sort of said it, is where Babylon-ness started, isn't it? It's where the story started, where Eve desired something other, a wisdom other than the wisdom of God. Um, she desired to, yeah, make, choose for herself what is good and what is evil. And that is what is being put to death. From the moment Eve made that choice, this city of man, I think, this, this worldview, this, these desires, this um, yeah, inclination to sin, right? To live apart from God began and infected and began to destroy God's creation and now he is coming to destroy it. And that very heart that would reach out for fruit that is pleasing to the eye and good for food is being judged, is being destroyed um, so that his, um, his creation can be renewed and in its place is left just the pure, holy city of God. Yeah. Um, why I think it's important to see that is just lest we think, um, oh, we're not wealthy, so it's okay. Because we could be tempted to think that, right? Well, yeah, there are people out there taking the selfies. I don't t- take the selfie, like Rebecca said. Or there are people that are flaunting their brand new household. I sure live in a dump. Right? And I'm not driving a new car, like I can hardly, mine's hardly staying together or whatever, but look at all these people driving their new car. It's easy for us to, to look at someone else and say, yeah, they're going to be judged, that is Babylon. But actually, it, I think John wants to expose it as simply this desire to choose for yourself what is good and evil. That is the luxury and the excessive ways. That is the heart of Babylon, the city of man that is in all of us. It's in all of us, and it's what um, Jesus died for and what he has come to save us from. So, Okay, very quickly with our last few minutes, uh, let's just look at sort of 
if this is the funeral, then there's the wedding, and then the war. As far as the wedding goes, you know what? I changed my mind this morning, and I decided that John has done this little thing that he always does, where he sort of drops a hint, but then actually he's going to really talk about it later. And that's what I think happens in chapter 19. We hear about the bride. We hear that there is a wedding. We hear there's a marriage supper of the Lamb, and blessed are those who are invited to it. And we hear that there is this bride of the Lamb, but we actually don't see her till 21, right? And I changed my mind. And what 19 really is, is worship. Which then I realized, well, of course it is. Because what has happened, what has always been the pattern throughout Revelation after God's judgment? What happens every time? There's rejoicing. Yeah, that's really good. The heavens are always celebrating the judgment of God. Um, So, yeah, so anyway, along with that, because of that, I'm going to keep, I have this question kept. Let's talk about that next time. Deal? Is that okay? Is the church the bride or the blessed wedding guest? We will, we will talk about that when we actually meet um, the bride next week, when she comes. So let's, let's do that. But let's move through some of these other questions, and, and let's look at, um, I think part of this is sort of part of the last section, then the war. Um, so the, the war begins with actually seeing the warrior, doesn't it? which is some of this, why does Jesus have a name nobody knows? So in um, chapter 19, verse 11, 11 to 16, we see this whole um, paragraph that's the rider on the white horse. And lots is said about him, right? And actually, I already said, I just said it's Jesus. But did you think it was Jesus? I guess I should have asked that question. What makes you think it's Jesus? His name, all the names. I heard, I heard someone else say that too. Yeah, all the names, all the things that said there about this writer reminds us. He's already been called the faithful witness in chapter 1. He's, he's already been told like he's true throughout um, Revelation. He wears all this, you know, these crowns on his one head. We talked about that before. So he's a king. We know that Jesus is the king. We learned that in chapter 15, verse 3, that he's the just and true king of the nations. Um, and then there's this name that nobody knows. Why does Jesus have a name nobody knows? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but there, he has a lot of names there. There's a lot of names that are said. And then there's this name that nobody knows. And then they give another name, right, that he's the word of God after they say he has a name nobody knows. I, I did do some reading that said um, there, Jesus actually has so many names, not even just in Revelation, but through the whole Bible. And there is a sense that um, even with all these names, they do not encapsulate his whole big or holy or a wonderful nature, right? And here's the thing about the ancient Near East, is that there is a sense in pagan culture in the ancient Near East that if you knew the name of a god, you could control him. So you always needed to know the name of your god so you could control him with the right sacrifice or whatever. Um, There's some really interesting things written 
about Exodus 3 when Moses asks, demands to know God's name. And a lot of um, commentators and scholars have looked into that to say that was natural for Moses because if he could know God's name, he could control the gods, right? And this was where God was showing him, no, 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 I'm the one true God. And how does he answer that question even? I am. Just I exist, right? He doesn't even give him anything he can hold on to to manipulate. So a lot of people say, like, it sounds so wonderful, Moses says, like, tell me what is your name? And a lot of commentators say, actually, he's, Moses might, be, might have been acting in a very pagan way, like thinking, we need to know this God's name, then we control him. That's, that's how they knew gods to work. Like, that's all they knew, right? Um, so... Jesus having a name that nobody knows also, I think, points to his power and his inability to be controlled by humanity. Right? Yeah. Can How, it also be that there will be a new side of Jesus that history has never seen? Yeah, that's so good. I really like that. It's it is a new, fresh revelation. Yeah. 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 yeah, and we don't know yet. Yeah, that's good. Yes. Yeah. Well, and and the same, but yet this yeah. new revelation because he is coming as now to set all things to right. Yeah, Christiana, I think that's really good to say that. I, I think that lines up with what John's been saying since the beginning, too, that he is going to be revealed. Um, going along with this is ruling with a rod of iron good, and why is the sword in its mouth? I'll talk about the first one really briefly, and, and then you guys can answer this second one. Is ruling with a rod of iron good? Does it bother you that Jesus, rule, the Messiah, rules with a rod of iron? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, I always feel a little bit like, come on. I, I take a lot of, um, I don't know, I really like it that, that, that this word in the actual Greek, right there in the Greek Bible, it says he shepherds with a rod of iron. That's what it says. Instead of ruling, it says he will shepherd them with a rod of iron. And I might just be, like, easing my conscience because I don't like what it sounds like, that he's ruling with a rod of iron. I think that sounds mean, right, or aggressive or something. But, but really, this is just, this is what's always been said from Psalm 2 about the Messiah. He rules with a rod of iron, which means unbreakable rule. His kingdom has no end, will not be defeated. That's what it means. Um, the other thing is, you know what? Okay, so you answer this, and then I'll say something about both of these. Why is the sword in his mouth? Anybody? Yeah, it's the word of God, right? So we know it's, it's imagery because you don't carry a sword in your mouth. So it's not about a sword. You, you do have to put that away, this idea that it's a sword, Right? It's, yes, the instrument of judgment is the word of God. Yeah. And basically, because at the garden, he said, here's where you may eat from. And Eve said, I'll choose for myself. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know what? A, a lot of this, this passage has been, um, I should have... I'll send it to you. I should have typed it out. I I thought I had it here, and I don't. This passage has actually been um, used by some very famous 
um, pastors just to demonstrate that, like, speaking of, you know, Jesus coming in this new way, there is a very well-known pastor who very famously preached about this and said, like, here in the end is where we see the real Jesus, and he called him the cage fighter Jesus, where he comes, and I'm not getting this perfectly, but, like, he destroys all the enemies and he makes the bad guy bleed. And it's just this real intense and aggressive, like, Jesus as this warrior that he is just going to conquer in this fearsome, terrifying way. And and I am not saying that God and his judgment is not terrifying and not fearsome. I believe it is. But I do not see Jesus portrayed through the whole book of Revelation as this, you know, he's going to make the bad guys bleed. Like he's a cage fighter Jesus. That's literally what this pastor called him. Um, and, and I do think it's... Yeah, sometimes people have looked at that and said, like, oh, this, this is the harsh Jesus. Let's go back to the, the lamb, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, like, I, I do think we, we didn't put this on the board, but why is his robe bloody? Whose blood is it is the real question, right? Yeah, is it, is it our blood? Is it, is it the bad guy's blood? Is that, is that what we think? Who else's blood could it be? I thought it was because later in that it talks about spreading the wine. Yeah. I, and that's kind of like... I feel I we've... kind of associated yes. those two. I always have seen mm-hmm. that, and, and we already saw, that, that he treads the wine press of the wrath of God. And I think he, has, he is coming because he has already fought the battle. Right? The battle is already over. He's not riding out to battle to make the bad guys bleed. He's actually coming out of battle, and it's his blood because he has tread the wine press of God's wrath by dying on the cross mm-hmm. through his own death. I, I do see that, that. That seems to really fit with everything we've, we've already seen. Um, and the other thing that I would say backs that up is what did you notice about the battle? There's, it's bloodless. It's so easy. I was gonna say too, like it's the like he does, like he has all his people around him. Yep. It's not like he needs them. Like yes. Yeah. So let's talk about that. He has these armies. Are they dressed as warriors? No. How are they dressed? Worship. Priests. They are dressed as priests. They are not dressed as warriors. What are they riding? white horses, which is the mount of the king. The king rides a white horse, right? Now, here's one interesting thing that we can talk about. We just had Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday. A king rides into the city on a donkey. He comes in peace. A king rides into the city on a horse. He comes for war, right? However, like Amy said, where's the war? Where's this battle that he's riding into? And it's also like interesting too that like the other side has all this, like all these people, and they're just like so easily. Like, yeah, yeah, they come and like he comes in, and that's because the war is over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the battle is won yeah. at the cross. He's actually riding out mm-hmm. of war. He's already completed the war. 
Um, yeah, because here, here they all are gathered together to wage war. It says that three times in three different sections. It says the enemies are gathered together to wage war. And I think it's like, like in reading sort of symbolically the way that we have been reading, it's like recapitulating the same final battle. And every single time it's like, okay, here they are. They're gathered against... And then verse 20, but the beast was taken prisoner and along with it the false prophet who had performed the signs in his presence. Like, so he's taken prisoner. That's it. There's no, there's no war. They're gathered to wage the war and they're just taken prisoner. Like nothing even happens. Yeah, the war was already won. I think that's really important to see. Yeah. Okay, we are really running out of time. The rest of this has a lot to do with the millennium. So maybe I'll write about... I'll write some, some answers and some thoughts for you about some of these things. Let's end. Uh, yeah, I think the rest of it. Let's end with this question because I love it. Are the vultures depicted as good? Like, how do you feel about this gruesome feast of the birds feasting on flesh? When I first read this, I was like, come on, John. <laughs> like... No. Yeah, I guess it's true. Did the homework help you? Yes. Because I did not like this at all. I was like, do we have to? Do we have to have that? It just seemed like it was almost, I don't know, it was sort of defeating the, the beauty of the whole thing. So the homework helped us to see some ancient context. And what did you see that is sort of a picture of? If you could just sum it up. The birds feasting on the flesh just means what? In the ancient Near East. Death? Yes. Death. Death. Complete death, right? So there was a lot of places that, um, that we saw it. And actually, I didn't even send you to Joseph has a dream and talks about this in Genesis 40, 19. It's the first time we see it. Then in Deuteronomy, it's the curse on, on evil. And it's talking about, like, actually, death is the result of disobedience, right? David and Goliath, David says it. Like, first of all, actually, Goliath says to David, and then David gives that back to Goliath and says, no, actually, you're going to die, and the birds are going to feast on your flesh. The prophets say it to the wicked kings in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Um, it's said to opposing a rebellious people who are opposing God. So it's just this pattern of showing death. In fact, in the New Testament... Jesus says in Matthew 24, 28, wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. So it's like saying, this is complete death. Okay, I think this, I, I love this passage now. If someone asked me about it, I would say, well, let me tell you something really amazing. I said this a long time ago, but when we studied covenant, we were reading Genesis 15, and someone asked this weird question. I mean, a good question. But it was about a weird verse, and I said, I absolutely have no idea. It's just, I don't know, the writer just wrote that in. And, and now I see it, and then I told my husband, and he was like, whoa. And then we started um, seeing a lot of other things, and it was, we thought it was kind of neat. Um, but the Abrahamic covenant, God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. So he tells Abraham to bring all the stuff and to cut up all the animals and to lay them out. So the very first time covenant is cut. 
in the Old Testament. And to make a covenant, it has to be cut, right? They cut the animals and lay the two pieces opposite each other. And then they pass through the path in the middle. And in this instant, God passes between the two halves. And there's this weird verse. So he, Abraham does all these things that God says. And it says this, birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And someone said, why? Why? Like, why is he flapping around? And it's like, well, I don't know. You know, there's dead animals there. So the birds are going to come. Yes, the birds are going to come. Because that's what happens at death. The vultures come. However, I think it is actually significant that Abram waves them away. And maybe I'm wrong. I could get to heaven and stand before God and he'll say, you're Bible coding. And I will say, I'm so sorry, I'll get on my face. But I do think this is beautiful. That, that What is this actually a sign of in Genesis 15 is not death. Abram is shooing away the birds because this is not death. This is life. This is the beginning of life for the family of Abram, for all of Israel, for all of God's people, because this is the covenant that assures it. And it is the covenant that assures Jesus will come and he will tread the wine press of God's wrath and his robes will be bloody. And because of that, ours can be white and clean, right? And not only that, but when we are there with him, not as warriors to also fight this battle, um, but as priests, a kingdom of priests. John has already said that in chapter one. And how did and when did Jesus make us a kingdom of priests? Do you remember from chapter one? It says, Jesus, who by his blood cleansed us from sin, making us a kingdom of priests. We come to reign with Jesus at the moment that he cleanses our sin. We become then a kingdom of priests to our God. Um, and going forward in this kingdom that is bringing life to the Babylon that is around us. Yeah. And, and I, I guess this is something interesting. And we can talk, I'll, I'll send this out maybe in, in chapter 20. But one thing that I... Also, I'm looking back on now, and I'm saying, why are the elders like, you know, the elders are casting down their throne. My dad was talking to me last summer, and their church had gone through a big, a very famous pastor had done a video series of teaching through Revelation. And they all stood up at the end, and, and the people from the congregation were sharing their big applications. And this one young girl, my, my dad, was really burdened because he said she stood up and said, I learned that. Someday I'm going to sit on a throne with a scepter and I'm going to have a crown on my head and I'm going to rule. And, and he was just, he couldn't get over it. He was like, what have we done? Like, how is this, how is studying Revelation leading us to this? And, and I agreed with him and, and I was like, I felt like, ugh, with him. And then recently I have got to go back to him and say, you know, Dad, what, what I see is that there is a time, there is a season, and some commentators call it the thousand years, started at when Jesus was born and ends when he returns, right? His, his reign, where we are reigning for him on this earth. We are priests for God, and we are kings. We are bringing his kingdom rule everywhere we go. 
But I think along with the elders, there is a day when we are going to cast that throne down, that crown down, right, in his presence and say, okay, yes, we did it for a while, but now you're here and like, it is all you. And I think that's why the elders cast down their crown. I think that's the picture in the beginning of Revelation. And, you know, there is one day where we have, we have really good work to do here. We have priestly work. We have kingdom work to do for Jesus. But there is a day when, when this, this Revelation 19 king is going to come. And regardless of all the confusing things and the way it doesn't seem to fit if we want it in a timeline. The truth is, death is defeated, Satan is defeated, and the world is put to right. And as we're going to see now, as we go home and start reading, the bride has come. New Jerusalem comes down, uh, prepared from God like a bride. And it's beautiful, right? You know, it's beautiful. Um, so thanks be to God. Um, that someday we, we won't be thinking like, yes, I get to wear this crown and sit on this throne. And in the face of this King Jesus who has done this, who has um, borne our sins all the way to the cross, the only thing I think we will be able to do is worship. That is what we will be doing. Um, yeah, so thanks be to God. Let's just pray, and then uh, we're dismissed. And if you have would like... Um, prayer tonight. Please come and um, some of our table leaders can pray for you or pray with someone at your table. Please do that. But let's, um, yeah, take Rebecca's words to heart too that um, yeah, that we need God and we pray because that is um, a way that we acknowledge our, our fallen state before him and, and our the way we humbly come to him. Jesus, you are king and you reign even now and you have, I believe, uh, since you uh, died and were resurrected. Something happened there. And God, forgive us for the way that we sometimes give uh, the enemy too much credit. He certainly does pursue. He certainly does um, weary us with um, and, and try to um, sway us by the false prophet and even the beast and all the ways of Babylon that are so seductive to us. And yet we do stand on the assurance that you have defeated him. And in a very real sense, um, we have that assurance and we have that victory. We live in that victory. Now forgive us for just falling into, I don't know, passivity or uh, just feeling like we cannot conquer or that we cannot overcome uh, or that we cannot endure. Uh, We already can now because of what you have done for us. God, give us a bigger picture of King Jesus this week. Give us a bigger picture of um, the city of God, the new Jerusalem. Lord, open our eyes in a way that we long for it and that our longing uh, changes our appetite and that this week we are women who have an appetite Uh, for holiness and for the presence of Jesus over and above the luxurious and excessive and sensual ways of Babylon around us. We do this and ask this by your grace and by your Holy Spirit. Hey, thanks for studying along. 
And wherever you are, it's our prayer that as you seek to read and hear and keep this message of the book of Revelation, that you too will experience the blessing that comes from being among those who choose to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Grace and peace. We'll see you again soon.